0: Hey everybody, it's Talk Gnosis. It's the show about Gnosticism and how it intersects with theology, art, culture, and whatever we want to talk about. Like, look, Gnosticism, it's a totalizing system. That means whatever I'm interested in this week, I can somehow weave it into the topic. I'm one of your hosts, Deacon John, joined by my co-host, Jason. Hey, Jason. Hey there. And our guest is the filmmaker, podcaster, and academic Helen Rollins. Helen, welcome to the
1: Hello. show. Hello. Hello. Am I an Hello. academic? Well,
0: okay. My, I in think a, you are. In a, in a, I think I in think a you are.
1: Slight way. In,
0: in mm-hmm. a slight way, yeah. Well, you know, I, we'll talk about this later on the, in the show. But uh, you do a lot with the Global Center for for Advanced Study, and and I understand you actually volunteer with them, uh, advising a severely mentally challenged man. So, yeah. A, I know, a exactly.
1: It's it, very it's, kind I of did you. it out of the goodness of my own heart, really. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's amazing volunteer work. How can I help this worker?
1: troubled man?
0: <laughs> Severe brain damage.
2: Um, should, should, should we... Uh, uh... Uh, explain that in-joke? for the Yes. End the yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, by the way, if, if anybody found that joke ableist, pre- please complain to jason at gnosticwisdom.net. That is, of course, our uh, <laughs> our complaints department. But uh, Helen is my, my thesis advisor at GCAS. I am doing uh the two 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 papers two dissertations two theses mm. uh, uh on the topic of gnosticism and uh helen has been uh, immensely helpful so far and uh saying before the show she she's never going to want to hear the g word ever again so
1: well i was going to say um, i'm glad i'm glad you feel that way because gnosticism is a mystery to me so
2: it,
0: same same here
2: okay <laughs> and, uh, and this is the thing is that that's the idea like the the, mm-hmm. the certain gnosis is like the unknowable knowing like it's that okay. it's that that uh the thing that you can't it's like it's like sort of a buddhist enlightenment kind of thing mm-hmm. um that uh the act of reaching it is never going to happen but we always keep striving anyway
0: yeah it's yeah, good. We find ourselves in the striving and, uh,
2: mm-hmm. you, you
0: know, I, I've been reflecting a lot on, not system's a dead religion, right? Uh, it, it was, but it's very influential. Um, so, you know, we're part of a revival and, you know, I think a, a lot of my work on the show, a lot of my work at GCAS is actually pointing out. Just how influential it is. Uh, actually, uh, mm-hmm. Jason, I actually, Jason, I did a show of Nick, uh, with, with Dr. Nathan Theorgy, uh, a two and a half hour show. Uh, he, he's a brilliant man. He, he's very articulate, but you know, he, he flat out said, you know, Hegel was a Gnostic, just no. No no two ways about it, just he, he said that exact statement, and I agree with him, and Helen will get to read all about it in uh, six months to, to four years. See, the, the fun <laughs> thing about this show is that there's going to be multiple people watching that I owe papers to, so Crestin <laughs> Sean, they're coming, I swear. Uh, okay, we, we better get into this. We are into this. This is an authentic conversation. Um, Helen... Uh, instead of talking about you and around you uh something Mm -hmm. i do really like uh in your podcasting work is is that you do like to discover truth or the way to truth through through dialogue through talking and through talking it out
1: i mean this is it's interesting because i don't know whether i've i've kind of reached a different um you know i mean to be gnostic with i don't know if this is gnostic about it but you Mm -hmm. know this sort of coming to knowledge through action potential through seeking something and then coming to something greater I don't know my my opinions on um, social media which I guess in a way podcasts might be part of this phenomenon or part of this sort of um, in this sort of vein but I set up a podcast originally in a few years ago with my friend Adrian Romero because we felt that um, we wanted to sort of like adopt a psychoanalytic kind of approach that maybe is is it like a a a dynamic in psychoanalysis that isn't really foregrounded in the like cultural understanding of psychoanalysis and that is speaking addressing your public so having honest conversations um in the presence of other people um and i mean this i guess this kind of relates to the public and the private and the way psychoanalysis Mm. understands the public and the private and i would say that the issue i i have with um social media is that it pretends to be public but it's really private so and i'm i'm not 100 percent sure how this fits in with podcasting but the attempt was to have a public conversation um, honestly in a way that sort of displayed ourselves uh, as divided beings and that you know that we and i did i did sort of discover that i came to um work out what i thought through conversation which I think is something that is lacking today Um, and that's part of the reason why we chose the word the name the lack for my current podcast which is um, the podcast that I I moved to from my original podcast Um, but it's the same sort of premise and um, you know so so we it has a sort of I mean I kind of am interested in um, Lacan's work and uh, there is this sort of Lacanian bent to it um, but also uh, so, so, so i guess that's where like the the philosophical idea the lack comes in but also another thing we felt was lacking were conversations uh, between um people from different disciplines and not only that people from different disciplines you have different points of view mm. um yeah
2: yeah so yeah, we have a, first... a
1: three-way conversation about uh, a cultural artifact every week and we have different you know there, there are crossovers like actually a lot of crossovers between there's three of us, me, Benjamin, Studebecker, and Nina Power, Nina Power, but part of the way it works is that we have a kind of a confrontation between different viewpoints and that that is generative.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah I was going to, to say to that general. it is I, I think it's a it's, it's my favorite podcast it, you folks have a, enough that that's different about you to so that there is a place of meeting right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. uh and actually some of my favorite episodes are the ones where you more strongly disagree with each other which is yeah. always you know you always keep it contained in, in in wonderful ways so uh yeah everybody uh go to patreon dot com slash the lack podcast so uh
2: okay and Just take a quick moment to say so. Yeah, that Helen's a um, a a great podcaster and uh, like interviewee as she's happening here right now, but also um, has done a lot of great filmmaking work as well. I just kind of um, put it put near the front here to anybody listening who doesn't already know Helen's work to just mention that she's got some. some,
1: That's another thing with podcasts though, because I feel like um, you know, one is required these days if one is working in the arts or in thought in any way that you know one has to have like a, a presence and uh, you know one has to generate content and stuff and it it sometimes gets frustrating that like it feels as though the content generation can um, take on more uh can be more demanding
0: Mm. than the
1: work itself or the work itself is very demanding and having to sacrifice time to or falling into sacrificing time to content creation you know sometimes you're like oh i wish i was spending all my time on making films but
2: Exactly, yeah. There, no, I one think the one
1: enriches the other, maybe.
2: I think there, there's something really, uh, uh, you kind of put your finger on it there, I think. Like even questioning like our podcast, social media, and I would probably say yes. Uh, but that, yeah, that issue of um, uh, <laughs> being present by continuing to be making content versus like a, the artist process of having to go away to make content, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. just mm-hmm. making it up front it. Uh, sorry, I know, I just I, kept, I'm just jumping on top I of that.
1: I think it's interesting as well because I think that um, it, uh, it certainly. I mean, it, it varies country to country, you know, in terms of like economic systems slightly being different. But sometimes one has to um, negotiate um, uh, social media more more than other times if one is falls outside of certain systems because one's work is a bit different or you know it's not as commercial or um you know it, it, a lot of a lot of we were just actually um, john and i were just in a, a lecture by uh, benjamin Studebeck, and we we're talking about this idea of liberty and one of the um question uh, the ideas we were discussing was this idea of like who who has the liberty to pursue um creative work and intellectual work and that um in certain regimes is granted to certain categories of person um mm-hmm. related to um what is comforting to the current regime in terms of um the non-threatening role of art to justify the regime so if one's work isn't doing that and one can't rely on um, a system that functions in a certain way because contingently at the time that one is making one's work it's not falling into that kind of dynamic then you have to sort of find ways
2: oh exactly yeah maybe find ways to
1: explain what you're doing because people don't know what you're doing
2: exactly as somebody who works professionally in theater here in Canada I know exactly what you mean
1: (laughs) Mm. (laughs) I think it's always difficult to say it but um yeah because also it's it's not the fault of anybody right when the way Mm that the system functions and it's not the fault of anyone if they um well you know that obviously one has agency in and one can make decisions about the way one like packages oneself or whatever but um you know there are like greater forces at work um that maybe determine like where one falls in relation to the regime so Mm. (laughs) sometimes I feel like I spend more time explaining what I'm in I'm doing with my work than doing Mm -hmm. my work (laughs) but anyway it's the way it is Yeah. yeah
0: I, I would, I, unfortunately, I, I I have to, I do view podcasts and, and YouTube as as social media because of the pair of sociability, right? Mm-hmm. People listen mm-hmm. to podcasts, they watch YouTube shows, and you know, as my best friend Benjamin Studebaker said on the lack, people listen <laughs> to the show and he and they feel like they they know him personally, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I, I think this is both good and bad. For instance, um, you know, I, I do get emails, uh, sometimes very sweet emails, sometimes emails that are incredibly important to me from, from listeners. I, I should be forwarding mm. these to you, Jason, because mm. they've 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 really uh, sometimes they've gotten me through a week. Right. Yeah. I also get a lot of emails mm-hmm. from people who perhaps should be on medication. Uh, a lot of it. <laughs> and a lot of emails telling me, you know, that, that I'm, that I'm going to go to hell. Mm. Um, so the, the parasociability goes both ways. And it's, mm-hmm. it, as I said, it can be both powerful and touching and it can feel like a real connection. But at the same time, you, I, I am suspicious. Right. Because yeah. uh, is this dangerous? Is this bad? I don't know these people. They don't know me. Or when I am listening to my podcast friends in my ears, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. actually know them right
1: well i do think i mean this is something that i've been thinking recently about um so i had i had facebook for a very short period of time at university and then i got freaked out by the way that it interfered with interpersonal relationships and how you would be walking through the university campus and you'd see somebody you'd never met in real life but you knew them through Facebook or whatever. And an incident happened where my sister criticized a Katy Perry lyric on Facebook and then got a pile on and I defended her and then I got piled on. I was like, oh, this is not worth it. So I deleted, this was like, I don't know, over a decade ago. Um, And then I didn't have uh, uh, social media for you know, whatever, a decade. And then I um, got Instagram because of my work. And at first, I got Instagram and I, I realized, like, what, well, you know, well, actually, it was actually because I had a couple of people, not um, because of me, because I had no public profile at the time, but because of um, a relationship I was in, I had two people um, pretending to be me online to get to this person. And so I thought, shit, I've got to have a public profile because then if people no. look me up, then they'll know this is me. And because one of them did something quite embarrassing and I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> I've, got to, I've got to show myself. Um, and so I got Instagram. And at first I was sort of like, you know, this is nice. I What was really nice about it was reconnecting with um, people I'd been at, like, say, school or university with. And because I hadn't had social media, I'd missed out on lots of social events or whatever. So that was fantastic. And then I sort of felt, well, you know, it's not really... the the technology that's the problem, it's the way that we interact with the technology or maybe it's the market system, not the technology, but of course the the technology is an the market system. But I've increasingly become more worried about it. And I think it was really um, lockdown where a large part of actual human interaction was replaced by screen uh, interactions. And I increasingly felt that the issue is to do with recognition and and misrecognition, like intersubjectivity. Because from a psychoanalytic perspective, when you um, become a self, when you develop an ego, this is to do with um, being formed in the presence of your parents or your family speaking subjects who must be divided subjects if they speak. This is, you know, like a theoretical point from psychoanalysis that takes quite a long time to get into, but the, the thing is that, in a psych- from a psychoanalytic perspective, nobody is whole and complete. That the lie in capitalism is that there are whole and complete people who maybe um, make us feel inadequate, or that we can aspire to be. Or um, and this is not just capitalism; these are various ideological regimes that there is, a, you know, a, a full answer out there, and somebody somebody possesses it. There's an uncastrated other out there, but there isn't. <laughs> um and but but the thing is in order to become a speaking subject or to become to have a solid ego you have to come up against the difficulties of interacting with other people who aren't whole and complete your parents would not be speaking subjects without themselves having been born to parents who were divided subjects and on and on and on that goes and one becomes um uh, sort of s- solid in oneself and one sense of self in the interaction with the other and sort of transferential relationships and in being seen in the mind of another who has the ability to subjectively judge and also to speak and when one sees oneself in the eyes of another who is a subjective who is a subject and therefore divided one comes to see oneself or or get a greater sense of oneself. I probably haven't described that very clearly. Anyway, the point being, the trouble is, is and this isn't something that just goes on in childhood, this is something that, that continues on, you know, through, throughout our lives. We, we come to know ourselves through the eyes of others. I mean, it's obvious Like we don't obviously except for here. We can see ourselves, but we don't really generally see ourselves. Other people see us and we come to understand ourselves through our relationships with other people. The trouble is on social media. It's very different from an intersubjective experience with somebody in real life because we're mediated by the screen, one, and then we're mediated by the market, two. So the market basically um, has as an imperative um, the selling of an ideology of wholeness and completeness. So th- this is it, we, maybe we have this, you know, social media is this like public platform. We have this illusion that it's public, but it's a really privatized public. It's a commoditized public. So it's one might air one's dirty laundry, for instance, but it is in the name of, generating private profit for an enterprise or you know turning oneself into a commodity where one might say you know look at my difficulties in life and this might either be as a cover story to explicate privilege or something or um to disguise that this is actually a capitalist enterprise so people because of the capitalist undercurrents seem to us to be whole and complete subjects on social media and not only that you know, this relates to the whole history of, like, say, screen media of cinema. We relate to screens in a very different way to the way we relate to human beings in in real life. Like the mis- the mirror stage in Lacan, you know, one of the stages one goes through in, in childhood to become a kind of to get to garner a sense of self is like, you know, we are we feel ourselves as sort of this chaotic mess of different forces and limbs and feelings, and as we get um, to a certain point, we uh, witness ourselves in the mirror and in the mirror, we look to ourselves as uh, somebody who has it all together because it's like a solid image of ourselves. We, we feel, you know, disjointed and we have mixed emotions and all this sort of ambivalent experience. But there's a singular person in the mirror. And then our, our caregivers might say to us, look, that's you. And that experience of seeing oneself as a total being that helps us set, feel like we make sense and sort of rationalize ourselves as a singular subject. Mm. So that is, well, th- that's also why generally, you know, like psychologically in the screen, we see objects that or people that seem more together than they actually are in reality. And these things like, this is not to say that this is always a bad thing because as you know, in terms of the mirror stage, it's very important to go through the mirror stage to, to get that sense of um, at least some semblance of like self-organization. But um When on social media, you know, and and just to relate it to like the history of screen media, obviously, like the history of Hollywood movies, you know, we are um, we relate to these characters, these demigods on screen who seem to have, um, you know, a convincing kind of totality to their being. So we've replaced like normal human interaction where we experience the other as a divided subject um, with this experience of because of the market forces and also because of the nature of the screen itself, that the other is whole and complete. But if the other is whole and complete, they're not actually like a normal human being, because in order to speak and to think and to to be a subject, one must have an internal um, sort of dichotomy or, you know, an unconscious one must be divided. So we're essentially like our intersubjectivity has been replaced by sort of like a robotic interaction between imaginary whole subjects who can't recognize us because if a subject is whole and complete there's no discernment there's no subjective judgment there's no there's no lack in subjectivity and therefore there's no way to come to a thought or a judgment so therefore we cannot have that reinforcement from the other where they have had a perception of ourselves that then fed back to us and this weakens our sense of self and the weaker sense of self leads to anxiety, dissatisfaction and, you know, becoming victim to capitalism in an even more sort of greater sense because one becomes vulnerable to the you know ideological forces at play that convince us. Oh, yes, you you are lacking, but that's an exception. And this is a remedy to to overcome that that sense instead of understanding that we are all lacking subjects and that um, projected totality is a lie. So I think that actually and we see this sort of um, this. You know, drive towards um, a desperate looking down of identity might be as a result of this weakening sense of self that humans are getting because normal intersubjective experiences between divided subjects has been replaced by um, a lack of intersubjectivity because of the screen through which we relate. So there we go. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think I explain myself very well, but that's. No, really I know no, you
0: did. That was. No, that that was yeah. perfect. And you know what? To to tie it in a, a, a bit with Gnosticism and what we normally do on this show, the. The ancient Greeks, uh, the Oracle mm-hmm. Delphi, right, uh, had mm-hmm. Gnothi Seshon, uh carved in stone, which means know thyself. You know, the Gnostics mm-hmm. picked that up. They actually quote it. It gets all the way down to modern esotericism. And, and and that's something that that I take seriously. But a lot of times when people hear that, know thyself, and they're thinking about it in a mystical setting, a religious setting, a Gnostic or Buddhist setting, they think, oh, OK, I have to go into a room. I have to meditate. I have to go deep. But I mm-hmm. would argue what the Oracle of Delphi was getting at, part of the Gnostic Messages and particularly one that's well expressed by the community that Jason and I are in is that you need the other to know thyself. Yeah,
1: exactly. You can't just no, yeah, you can't just sit yeah.
0: around and go in deep. And you know that that's something that that our that our head bishop really kind of hammers home is is uh, uh, Sean McCann, uh, um, uh, Marionis, is is that. We really need the other and we find we find God in the other right Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. uh, finding God in the other might be might be a discussion that that is outside of uh, the realm of of this show, because it might take a couple hours, because how can we find (laughs) God in the other if the other is divided? Well, perhaps everything is divided and perhaps we might be looking for God in some pretty unhealthy places, which Mm -hmm. which brings me to my my, uh, next question, Helen, which is Mm -hmm. what what might surprise people about your work uh, is that uh, theology pops up a surprising amount um so what 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 good is theology in in a in a secular and a non-religious world and you're not you're not a religious person right even though this 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 theology theology does play a a role in your work so can you tell us like what what good uh theology might do us here in the 21st century and why an atheist (laughs) might care about theology
1: so yeah i didn't have a religious background at all except i would say that potentially it was i came to understand it was maybe much more religious than i I thought because um, yeah we you talk about secularism you talk about atheism but potentially um, you know this this is uh, um, uh, thinking of the Nietzsche text this is from the shadow of God right so um, I'm going to quote this terribly I had a a whole aspect in a documentary film about this you can't remember (laughs) but this is the idea that we have um, we have killed God but the shadow of God cast on the cave wall for a thousand years okay i'm butchering that nobody at me i need to read (laughs) i haven't had much time to read but anyway but the point being is is we can we can we can um believe that we have (laughs) killed god in the outside world but god still persists god today is unconscious as Lacan would tell us so the atheist might think that um they aren't religious but the religious impulse still exists beyond a sort of rationalist level and perhaps it's more dangerous to consider oneself an atheist, because one might be blind to one's own beliefs. At least if one acknowledges one is religious, then there is a, you know, a a, a modesty in a way in, uh, or an honesty in understanding the religious dimension to one's um, subjectivity. And the way I would interpret religion, because one can I think have, and I think the best of Christianity does this, a religion that is auto critical so a religion that maybe revolves around uh, a, a, let's say a theology of um, pointing out the way that religion functions. And I think psychoanalysis mm. is sort of like a an a-religious practice that helps us undermine the toxic dimensions of the religious tendency of the human being and psychoanalysis explains that this religious tendency comes out of um, the way in which humans are born too soon and the way in which they enter subjectivity and
2: mm.
1: the human subject is born too soon in psychoanalysis i mean this is sort of like a a biological explanation which is that we, we're bipedal beings and we have small pelvises and big heads so we have to be born in sort of a fetus state if you look at like a horse or, a, or an elephant on the sahara they're born and they sort of are able to run and fend for themselves but we are born as fetuses we're sort of born too soon and we we remain part of our mother for um or that the person who births us for a certain period of time until such time as we we separate we um we become a, a being that can sort of fend for themselves in a way that's, you know, more um a, a more adequate way than when, when we're first born. And this um, leads to a sort of second birth, which is a birth into language and the birth into language happens because this separation. So we have the separation from mother um, inside to out and then the separate the second birth uh, from the mother from um, being part of the mother into subjectivity and subjectivity is generated by the frustration that the infant Experiences in the separation, and the separation uh, generates the need to speak, to to communicate. um, And basically, language uh, emerges in the failure to communicate. So um, the child needs to express what they need because um, the parent, and this is as well, by the way, to go back to in subjectivity in the way that the parents fail, but in the failure is the success, is that the parents themselves don't really know what the child needs. It's like, so, you know, you might think, so you're, you're tired, let me put you to bed. But the, the parent has to do a whole amount of interpretation in the child's cries in the first place uh, because the parent themselves is not an all-knowing being. And this sort of um, frustration and difficulty is what generates language because the language is there to f- fill up the gap that happens in the frustration of communication. Mm. Um, so, yes, but the, the point being where, where religion... You know, because, again, there's this sort of like multifarious ways to understand the word religion. But in this context, I'm talking about um, the tendency for a human to believe that they can fill up a lack that they experience from that is um, they're endowed with upon their second birth into language. Because they always had this experience that there was something there before they entered into the frustrating world of having to communicate and to speak and to lack because um you know to not have because the not have generate not having generates language itself so and what i would say is it's not that um eden did exist but eden only existed insofar as it was lost so the mother's breast takes on this kind of magical quality because it was experienced as um, being something that the child had immediate access to and then was frustrated from. But that period of time, so, you know, the, the womb itself is a tomb. You're dead before you're alive. You know, you didn't exist before you were born. So this sort of um, return to oneness, for instance, that one might you know, hope for in this sort of ideological and pursuit for wholeness and completeness is, is a death in, in the first instance and then as soon as you're born into the world you're already born into antagonism because your parents also are divided subjects but because you are part of the mother and the mother is sort of taking the best care of you that she can you you aren't yet a speaking subject but you have this experience when you enter into language that there was something better that you know exists and you imagine you could get back to but you can't. And not only can you not get back to it because oneness is death from this psychoanalytic perspective, but also the oneness never existed in the first place. And this is maybe where Lacan gets more Hegelian than other um, psychoanalytic theorists, because even in that period of time when one was at one with one's mother, there was no oneness there because the mother was already a speaking subject. But the point being is that this, this pursuit of a return to wholeness you know, it's tied into this idea of death drive because oneness is a return to oneness, is a return to before life, is a return to death. Um, so, I mean, I guess there's a, there's a whole um, like universe to get into in terms of how this relates to, to atheism. But the point being is that there is not um, a pure rationality in the universe in which we live if we if we buy into the big bang this is like a prime example of everything is generated from antagonism between light and dark or on and off or one and two or the oscillation between whatever particles um or i don't know how i guess there's various theories with the big bang and again don't at me i'm not a scientist but you know (laughs) something becomes in so infinitely small that it becomes um infinitely (laughs) complaints yes and the complaints um but this is the thing <laughs> as well me. by the way with podcasts is like you have to be able to have these conversations to sort of work out mm-hmm. what you think anyway and we, we are kind of closed off from doing that in this in this sort of the world in which we live but um
2: uh, yes can i just to jump in there for a second yeah. uh it's something that you said a little earlier that really struck me that i want to um uh, re in a way in a thought that i've been having a lot regarding yeah uh the sort of the the efficacy of spirituality or, and religion mm-hmm. is that i think like um the 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 worst approach you can take to religion is to try to confuse it with truth
1: yeah
2: um like yeah. that uh uh that there doesn't um like getting hung up on the like world created in 6 days you know mm-hmm. or afterlife or any anything where you're where you are trying to presume a specific truth
0: mm-hmm. is
2: is uh is where religion is sort of not no longer helpful uh,
0: mm-hmm. and where
2: that it's, it's most helpful is when it's like trying to be as resonant as as art can be in
1: mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. in and uh, helping you connect with uh, with with that lack like with that mm-hmm. with this understanding of a world of, of, uh, of adversarial elements and and yeah. like frustratingness and things like that it's like mm-hmm. so the 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 best metaphors it can it can give you to deal with that are uh are where it's like are where religion spirituality etc can help uh uh, and where like where (laughs) where it causes the most problems is when it's like oh no you are 100 percent going to go to heaven if you do the following checklist Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. know um uh, but this
1: is this is the interesting thing because in a way it's like it is like the dialectic of religion Lacan says only only a christian can be an atheist right (laughs) so the, the way that what what i guess it's got out there is that it's only by like throwing oneself into uh, certain beliefs is not necessarily a bad thing because often one and this is i i guess this this phrase relates to what i try to do with the films that i make is that by throwing yourself into a belief almost is the way in which a i don't know truth or or, or Um, a dynamic of reality is revealed to you which is that everything falls ultimately into contradiction so the more one pursues something with certainty the more one falls out of the other side but in a sense yeah in a a sense though, it's like the, (laughs) the atheist is the most well it depends what we mean by religion but can be the most religious person if we if we interpret the word religion in let's say it's um, one you know the, the sort of uh, one one way in which it's understood which might be sort of magical thinking or detachment from reality or something like that because there is a truth in reality that can only be encountered when one throws oneself into reality. Which might be through something like blind belief. Like I didn't grow up religious, but I did um, throw myself into uh, a form of psychoanalytic thinking that I would say is, is very magical thinking, and that very quickly after a few months revealed itself to me to be very limited. But mm-hmm. I don't think I would have encountered the limitation. I I returned to a position I already had, but maybe with greater knowledge, and I wouldn't have encountered that philosophical insight if I hadn't thrown myself into this way of thinking that mm-hmm. didn't work <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
2: there's there's also something I think interesting here about uh, like so uh, a bit of a segue but another great mm-hmm. podcast out there is called uh, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast on okay. mm-hmm. Um and uh, uh, it's a it's, it's it's very Like he's, he's very slowly taking everybody through the history of esoteric thought. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's interesting is as he got to Christianity, one of the notes he made is that um, what was really interesting about uh, the advent of it when it became a really like prominent religion was that there was, there was a real focus on big T universal truth Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and that, and that was something that was actually kind of like confusing to like the Romans and Greeks and, and stuff around them, yes. who were like uh, pagans, but they weren't like their their religious perspectives weren't so totalizing. Like yeah, yeah, there, there was never a moment. Well, I mean, actually, who knows who? Uh, I presume there wasn't a moment where somebody was going, I have to logically understand Zeus to be in every corner of the universe. It was simply mm-hmm. like Zeus, Olympus, whatever. I'm going to go do my job now. You know, but mm-hmm. then there was this exciting idea but then also this totalizing idea mm-hmm. that I, I, I where i'm going here is that i think like what what i what, what you what strikes me about what you mentioned is that only when you have such a totalizing idea can you then embrace what the lack of that idea has to it if that makes sense
1: yeah yeah and it's, i guess this is something that's in hegel i mean there's a lot of people who like re, well people would argue that it's there in in paul or in in christian thought but there's people who have like reinterpreted Christianity atheistically, which Mm. is that, yeah, it's only through, as you explained, Jason, throwing yourself into this belief that one comes to the fact that the cross maybe represents the end of meaning or something. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you talk about like um, Greco-Roman thought and religion where antagonism and contradiction is woven into the fabric of the way that, you know, that the network of, deities so Mm -hmm. they are divided subjects so the tragic is in there because they are subjective and they you know have influence on the world and you can't trust them because they're fallible like everybody else and then we're sort of yeah it's going to the sort of universal truth where maybe a certain interpretation is that there's like an, an almighty singular being but then maybe through um an encounter with or through um Engaging with that belief, one might come to understand the limitation of that belief.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but yeah, and it's interesting because I guess this this relates to to capitalism as well because um, there is there is very if we if we interpret religion, and I I actually don't I think there's a lot of positives to religion, so. Again, don't at me. But like I'm just saying that this sort of um, the, the the downside of religion, let's say doctrine that maybe we, you know, we understand religion as or we atheistically assume that we're above. Um, and, you know, this is why it's so, so tragic in today's world, because it's obviously operating um, a huge amount of magical thinking operates and related to the commodity and the, the promise that the commodity offers us. And because of this um, ideology of promise, we are. We allow for a huge amount of exploitation and inequality, um, and we have a, a, a huge amount of confidence. But the issue with capitalism is that the problems of capitalism are, are mystified, and I think one of the ways in which they're mystified is the denial of religious thinking that operates within the market system itself. So, and we, you mm-hmm. know, snobbishly look at other parts of the world or. or dynamics in our history where we're like look at those you know these people who believe in this sort of way but you know one might say that there is at least um something uh different i don't i don't think anything's better than anything else per se but like it it is not great to have religion operating unconsciously through the market Mm. (laughs) you know you know you think about like let's say like judaism and sort of the the jewish religion and there is there is you know an atheism to Ju- judaism as well in a certain way but it's sort of you, you engage in these practices on a friday and saturday and then you can kind of you you exercise in a way this dynamic within the human subject in an honest way and then you, you've done it and you can get on with your week kind of thing um but now you know it's operating all around us in a denied way and i mm. think this leads to a lot of confusion and dissatisfaction. Um, and a, a sort of, like, surprise at how shit things can get. <laughs> because we're, you know, consciously in control of, not that I think that one is ever in control of this sort of, like, dynamic within human subjectivity, but I think the, the repression of it is something that's not productive.
0: Mm. Yeah. To, to illustrate what you're saying, there was a, uh, an article that went uh, a little bit viral in Canada from our, our public pro- broadcaster, the, the CBC, on their website, and it was a Canadian religious uh, sociologist talking about how how Disney is a kind of religion, is becoming a kind of religion, how mm-hmm. people have a religious uh, relationship to Disney, right? So th- I think this is kind of an example of what you're talking about, and perhaps if we knew how religion worked and how we can have uh, religious relationships to things that aren't very religious, and perhaps it's not that healthy, like, I, you know, I want to go to Disney World, I haven't gone yet. I I like Disney movies, right? But perhaps to have a religious connection to this large corporation and a and you consider your quote unquote community to be fellow fans, perhaps this isn't the best for human flourishing. And perhaps some of these dynamics People wouldn't fall into them if they kind of understood that this is how human beings relate to the world in many ways. Mm-hmm. We have these behaviors that, that uh, are—I'm not going to say we're inherently religious beings. Uh, that is what I mean, but I'm not going to say it. But we have these behaviors that have, that seem to be programmed into us that are are central to our psyche, to the to the dynamics you're talking about about how we're formed into subjects, and they're, uh, we're stuck with them. And maybe there's healthier and unhealthier ways to mm-hmm. to relate to it. Um and also to, to mm-hmm. clarify a few things, or you know, we're talking about the show uh, and as I was saying at the beginning, what does any of this have to do with, with Gnosticism? So I'd like to pick out some of the Gnostic themes. I, I was <laughs> responding with a with a with a scholar uh that we are going to have on the show and she also flat out said, well, you know, obviously Gnosticism is in Lacan. I don't know why everybody doesn't see it. And I'm like, well you're one of the three people with PhDs in the entire world that I know of who also who has seen it. Um but you know, it's, it's very interesting, Helen. I think perhaps some people's heads uh, poked up who are very familiar with, with the religious Gnostic mythology, because we're, we're talking about Eden being an illusion, Eden being the womb, Eden being kind of a trap. In Gnostic mythology, Eden, Eden is a trap. It's a uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a false reality. It's 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 a dream created by this 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 false god to to keep human beings uh, separated, uh, confused, and lost. And some of the uh, Gnostic texts actually refer to the womb as Eden. So so very very interesting. And also you know Gnostic mythology has this idea of a fake god that rules this mm-hmm. world, and it's okay. usually it's usually uh, visualized as a as a snake with a lion's head. But th- there are some textual references uh, visual. It as a womb or perhaps a female genitalia. So it, it's very yeah. interesting how how some of this does does kind of tie in. Now I'm not saying mm. that the the ancient Gnostics were the Kanians, but they were very psychological, and I think they are coming mm-hmm. to to some of the same insights. And what's really sort of pulled me in this direction was was rereading a a gnostic text which had been lost until 1945 the the Mm -hmm. secret book of john and in 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 the beginning of the book i don't know how many times i've read this text helen and jason you jason you know i'm always talking about it right I've, Mm -hmm. i've probably read it you know 10 times 20 times 30 times it's not that long but near the beginning of the text it says the one cannot be known Flat out. Mm -hmm. How many Mm -hmm. times have I read that in my life? The one cannot be known. The one cannot be known. Uh, A a lot of times the interpretations of Gnosticism, like Gnosis means to know, is that that we completely know the one and we fuse with the one, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the text opens with the one cannot be known. And then when we go on with the text, God's wisdom, God's reflection upon itself, the absolute knowing of God trying to know itself, it can't even achieve that. If God's wisdom can't know the one, well you know how are we supposed to know the one, and what mm-hmm. happens when god's wisdom tries to know the one? it falls into contradiction that's mm-hmm. in the in the Gnostics uh narrative where there's it's very obvious that that contradiction comes into the story though i'd argue that it's actually at the very beginning, also, just to tie it in and this, this is a whole show or perhaps a whole uh, uh master's thesis um. <laughs> in, <laughs> that that we might be hearing more about in the future the, <laughs> very interesting also at the beginning of of, of secret john is is the one all, all creation starts when the one looks into the water that surrounds it that they call it like a luminous water so it's not a literal water and it sees its reflection so it's it's the mirror stage right and what what does it see it sees it sees a wholeness it sees a completeness and it wants to know this wholeness and completeness but it's it can't know this wholeness and completion because mm-hmm. there's only contradiction Helen mm-hmm. talking about only contradiction perhaps uh, you've already sort of discussed it but if you can if yeah. you can sort of pull it out and make it more obvious but you taught a seminar yeah. that that people can still take right it's, ar- okay. it's archived so yeah. it's uh yeah. yeah it's called the emancipatory <laughs> contradiction mm-hmm. um so I, I'm going to, you know, without knowing anything about this course, uh, first, I want to know how, how can contradiction be emancipatory? And is it is it emancipatory because it's all about how we can free ourselves from contradiction, fix ourselves through reconciling Ooh, yeah. contradiction and reaching alive in its wholeness? Is that is that how it's
1: emancipatory? <laughs> it's to do with um, how. Coming to terms with contradiction might allow us to have a better understanding of the world in which we live and consequently build more equitable political systems. So Mm. my favourite quote of Marx is from the introduction to the critique of Hegel's Philosophy right, which is the, um, you know, the chains bit, the picking the living flower bit. It's funny. I feel so out of practice. I feel like I talk so much. And then when it comes to like actually explicating myself, I'm like, oh, shit what do i what do i even think i don't know but anyway but these you know these aren't my ideas anyway so everybody can find them said by better people everywhere <laughs> um but anyway but the point being is is in this passage it's about how you know that let's say one is one is enchained in the capitalist system and the the, the chains are covered by um uh, sort of fake flowers and this is let's say ideology and ideology is that which um reconciles us to reality by papering over contradiction and um, under capitalism the uh, ideology uh, that it operates is that which um makes us deny the contradictions and difficulties within the market system and the idea in this passage is that you um you cast your gaze away you 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 stop being caught up in in the fake flowers and you um you know you consequently can like pick the fake flowers from the chains work to break the chains and this might be like sort of collective action or, or um, confronting the reality in which we live to 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 work collectively to to create better um, better systems which must that understanding must include an understanding of contradiction lest you know the contradiction be repressed and returned in you know terrible ways in another in another system and um, Zizek has said that sort of communism is the dream of capitalism in a way because there is this idea that communism can be, you know, that, that, that so Marx was a Hegelian, and as Hegel famously says, the owl of Minerva flies at dusk. So we we don't know where we're going, and sometimes what can happen, and even Marx like points this out in like chapter three of the um, Communist Manifesto. There are many um, sort of fake socialists who will, um, you, you know, protect project a sort of utopian future, and the utopianism is precisely that which guarantees that we are caught within a dissatisfying reality. So utopia in this contradictory universe cannot logically exist. That's a whole other talk. But um, what we do to sustain the image of utopia, which maybe um, keeps us uh, comforted from our, from our like, difficult reality, but because we can't access utopia logically, we sustain the illusion of the possibility of a utopia by either casting scapegoats or enemies, who are the reason why the utopia doesn't exist and this is obviously what Hitler did or we um, shoot ourselves in the foot constantly to prevent ourselves from getting the thing that we imagine will give us you know a, a wonderful transcendental experience so that we can sustain this idea that this transcendent experience or utopia exists and that's sort of the neurotic for, for Freud or whatever um, but and this is where where Freud and I think Marx are, are similar so in in working to to break the chains which which will inevitably um, require a dialectical understanding of reality because reality is divided, and then we can sort of go on to pick the living flower and the living flower you know and I think this relates to um, Freud's ordinary unhappiness, is to do with navigating a divided reality and constructing Uh, systems that work better based on a knowledge that incorporates an understanding of lack and contradiction.
0: Yeah yeah no exactly and again for for angry emails you know we are we are sponsored by a religious organization we we can't agitate for a political a specific political party within the United States which is definitely not what we're doing right now and uh, there are political ramifications of the thought that you're talking about but Mm -hmm. I see this as as philosophy, and and look, capitalism isn't going anywhere. It's going mm-hmm. to be, it's it's still going to be around in our lifetimes, the whole time that we're alive. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure, right? So no matter mm-hmm. your personal political beliefs or how you vote, I I think that that you will get a, a lot out of uh, some of what mm-hmm. Helen is talking about and some of the sources that she's drawing on. Just understand the dynamics, and perhaps if you love capitalism, mm-hmm. this might be the way that that it could be perfected or made no, better, absolutely, or absolutely. a market system can be absolutely. tamed, right? So don't because, send me the angry emails calling us.
1: A so, no, because i would say also that that you know as i said before in some ways one could say that, like look at stalin stalin was a huge right-wing deviation and sort of left-wing ideology but you know some communists if one if one holds up communism as this utopian um, possibility that's like literally the most capitalist thing you know this this wholeness and completeness it's a promise just over the horizon how can we get that well he's at his for 6.99 a month you can no but um also if you um,
0: sign up for our patreon and you'll get there
1: and the, the, you know conservatives have a lot more in common <laughs> with uh left leftists than than like all out sort of liberal capitalists like i think that's quite clear but um but yeah and i also i mean i don't even know where i stand politically a lot of the time by the way and i would say i Uh, would read Marx in in a philosophical way rather than a doctrinal way and I think that uh, you know Marx had a very good reading of capitalism and if somebody were a capitalist who wants a system to function as well as possible for as long as possible then you know one might be interested in looking at somebody who had a very interesting understanding of the market system but again what I would say is that From my philosophical understanding, what is, what it is to be left wing, and I sometimes get in trouble for saying this, is to engage in the political and to engage in the political, that politics is just the contradiction or confrontation of the contradiction between different groups of interest related to how we manage material, you know, living in material reality. So to, to say that one doesn't accept another political group is precisely, I would say, from my perspective, the least left wing thing ever. And I would I mean, I have a sort of a similar reading of left and right as someone like Todd McGowan would. And that is not the universally understood reading of left and right. And I think that does lead to like a lot of confusion. But I think precisely what's problematic today is that what is deemed left wing is extremely totalitarian and you know we see in the left all the time that people get cancelled even for associating with somebody with a viewpoint a political viewpoint that the the liberal capitalism or the liberal left deems unacceptable but actually really from a left-wing perspective you know we, we don't know where we're going and we need to have this confrontation with different points of view in order to understand and this isn't just a sort of like debate sort of is what you know the pressure of debate makes a rock into a diamond or anything like that no it's like this we live in a contradictory reality we live with other people who are contradictory subjects and who have different points of view in order to understand or to create a more equitable reality we must understand this dynamic and that dynamic you know as in this this gets us out of sort of the magical thinking the ideological thinking which is all to do with cancelling contradiction and like you know including in subjectivity and this leads to toxic sort of forms of um you know organizing society but actually we do need this confrontation between all these different kinds of points of view and often there is much more in common uh, with point you know in terms of political different political points of view than, than we than we would choose to 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 admit you know you listen to like the most sort of uh, let's say stereotypically right-wing religious person you ask them their understanding of what heaven is and it sounds like a lot like communism for instance So i think a lot of people and i you know i don't even know if i i don't know what as i say i don't know what i identify with politically so i'm talking about this from a philosophical perspective and i think that um in terms of discourse we have to confront all kinds of perspectives because of the divided nature of reality and the divided nature of subjectivity. And this leads to um, different interpretations of reality that must be allowed to exist. And it's in the, the cancellation, this sort of, um, um, you know, Hegel has this sort of idea of the beautiful soul where one, um, you know, the, the children sort of go through this, um, it's sort of like a paranoid schizoid-like position in in childhood when a child is sort of coming to understand that they have darkness within themselves you know that they're experiencing sort of bad thoughts whatever and you know they start to imagine at night that there's a scary monster in the cupboard and that's sort of a way that they manage the darkness within themselves that they're coming to to sort of realize and obviously this, this political scapegoating different perspectives don't go away and the antagonism doesn't go away and the unconscious doesn't go away and the sort of the you get the sort of more reaction return of the p- repressed if we don't sort of have honest and uh, like conversations that acknowledge this so um yeah but i do understand that a lot of these like the terminal but again like this is language itself language fails language is like the slippery slope a slippery piece of soap that it never hits the nail on the head you know <laughs> like and that's that's why language is what it is if it wasn't for the fact that language fails we wouldn't have conversation we wouldn't have um we wouldn't have comedy. We wouldn't have trans, you know, the difficulties of translation. We wouldn't have art. Art is like, or let's say poetry is like the the, um, you know, the like the yawning kind of um, excess that happens because of the failure of language. So in terms of politics, like I know that when I say Marx, like this this means so much to so many different people and you know i mean this is like because I, I used to work a lot as a translator. so there's this sort of idea in translation like how google translate can never really work because you cannot binarize language and every word that you have has a sort of a universe to it so there's um, a famous french translator who has this, who i was listening to and he was talking about the word bread like when you translate the word bread in france like there is not the same universe of meaning Like bread might mean like, uh, meat having, you know, meat meals or lunch or a baguette or sort of good, good artisan food or something like that. Or the people, it's
0: it's very painful to uh, translate it. Yeah, but in
1: America, yeah, (laughs) but yeah, in America, you might have the idea of money, like bread earning a living and, you know, sort of shitty things in a disgust, like horrible school lunches or something like that. So, like, you have this universe of meaning, and so. Like when I, I understand the terms left and right in a certain way, and I know lots of people don't understand those terms in those, those ways. And sometimes I, I identify, well, I think a lot of people identify, aside from the terminology, a lot of what's going on in the left is much more right wing. So it's difficult to talk about these things. But yeah. I think to be political is to talk about these things.
0: Yeah. What's no. I, I. I. I really. I really agree, and I'm. I, I'm really. You know, I, I'm really disgusted and, and sad. And, and this is also tied into us being locked down uh, uh, during COVID, tied into the relation through screens, but just the echo chamber, right? I just, mm-hmm. I rarely talk to anybody who has a different opinion from me. And uh, the, I know that that is not healthy. But I, I do want to move on, Helen, because time is, is, is ticking. And mm-hmm. we really got to talk about your work as a filmmaker. Um, yeah. <laughs> how, did you, how did you get into filmmaking? What, what drew you to um, it? Like And what do you like about the medium?
1: So what drew me to it? I was um, interested in languages growing up. That's sort of like my special interest, I guess, when I was a young person. And because of my father's job, he was sort of a military diplomat. So we lived in lots lots of different countries and I became very interested in languages. And my degree, my first degree was, well, not my first degree, my degree was in languages. Um, But I um, basically being a little bit Um, somebody who likes to make my life easy for myself, I realised that I could get very good at languages by watching loads of movies in another language. And this was in the time, this was sort of like 2003, 2004, when I really started to do this in my kind of early mid-teens. And, um, you know, I just watched the same VHS like a million times. But I really got into film through my interest in learning languages. And then I did a languages degree and I Really like literature as well. Like literature is, you know, um, a big thing in languages degrees, but also, you know, you can look at look at film. I actually wanted to um, do something completely different with my life, which was uh, be a professional athlete at one point, but I uh, couldn't because I had this illness that was undiagnosed for a long time. And when I eventually found out what it was, I had been getting like really crap at the sport that I did during the time that I was undiagnosed with this illness. And um, I took a job during this time, which I wasn't that satisfied in. Um, as I was sort of trying to work out what I wanted to do. And then when I found out what my health condition was and I realized I would never be a professional athlete, I was like, right, okay, let's end this pursuit. And then let's look at something that I'm, you know, have been interested in um, prior to this, which was film. But I never really thought, it was really the shock of sort of finding out what was going on in that, in that side of things that made me um, focus my interest on, on film. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously not um, an easy thing to do. Um, because films cost a lot of money and uh, this leads to a lot of sacrifice and especially if you're making films that maybe are... Um, I love I love all kinds of films and I think because the power of the medium transcends whether you're making sort of an art house film or some sort of Ponzi philosophy, philosophy film or something like that. Um, and actually I think that the, some of the most philosophical films follow a more sort of um, uh, base maybe um, visceral uh like narrative structure
0: yeah rather than example. sort of like
1: an hour yeah yeah, <laughs> not, sort of an...
0: crime thrillers.
1: yeah. yeah no well exactly <laughs> and not yeah there's air, airy fairy. i mean i we sort of did a version of a crime thriller in a sort of ph- philosophy film that we made but um but some of these sort of more experimental sort of airy fairy films that don't get to the point you know i think actually they're maybe not quite as powerful i don't the subject i believe as as the more kind of um start to finish um you know, elaborate kind of river narrative. But yeah, no, I've been doing that now. Um, I started to make films when I was, uh, just before I was 25, so that was um, nine years ago. And uh, I've been doing that ever since. Yeah, and various things on the side as well.
0: Yeah, and uh, uh, Jason, you you watched and enjoyed uh, one of Helen's films. What's it it called again? (laughs)
2: Uh, All One was how I pronounced it. but uh, yeah, uh, the, apparently it can be read other ways, John.
0: Yeah, I, I I've always read it as as a loan, uh, but I'm sure we can probably get a, a few more readings out of that title. But it's uh, we're going to link it up. It is it is free online. It is public, um, and it actually explores a religious parable. And I don't think I've ever told you this uh, before, Helen. But uh, it's a religious parable. It's it's originally from Buddhism that that I use so much in, in my local community here in Montreal that I think everybody w- will quit if I say it one more time so really? and, you know what I remember really? that that's, yeah yeah so so I remember when I was you know first looking for a thesis advisor or like you know hunting around you know I, I saw your I, I saw that film and I'm like oh wow you know that it's a sign but no it's not you know what I mean <laughs> um but uh, uh we will link it you can watch it for yourselves but can you tell us like a bit about it
1: Yeah so I actually I hadn't heard this parable but I was listening in on another podcast being recorded and somebody recounted this parable and I just thought this was you know would be so it's so cinematic and um, it kind of aligns with what I try to do in the filmmaking that I I do and I thought it would be very cinematic to set it in Ireland where I'm from and you know in the Irish language (laughs) Um, and I guess that the reason why I well, I actually think parables function in a in a way that's similar to the the kind of films that I make, which is to do with using the sort of very riven narrative form to sort of trick the viewer in a way. Although I think this even if I explicate that it's a trick and um the reveal of whatever film is um it's it's obvious that it's gonna end up the way it is. Like I I think films still work whether you whether you explicate the plot or not, actually, unless like it's M. Night Shyamalan or something that's like all relying on a kind of, um, you know, trick. Um, but yeah, so this film basically is about um, the transferential relationship between a woman and, and a, a religious figure. She's lost her child and she goes on, well, her child is unwell and she goes on sort of a uh, a quest to to heal the child and she visits lots of people who don't have any remedies and eventually she she meets this sort of, um, witch hire a mountain who gives her a remedy which is that she must find a very specific form of seed and brew it into a tea and feed it to the child but the um, the the seeds can only come from um, a house that isn't marked by, by loss, you know, death or whatever and um, so the young woman enters uh, the community of the world and she goes house to house and in in hearing the stories because obviously she finds no one who hasn't hasn't suffered loss um, which is the nature of reality because obviously life is terminal is a terminal you know so um she she encounters the fact that nobody um has you know not experienced grief and and loss and death and through this communal experience she's able to come to terms with the loss of a child and and bury the child sort of collectively with people in her community Um, and she comes to understand that sort of death is part part of life. But it, it's it's she only. I mean, I guess this sort of like relates to this idea of only the Christian as the atheist. It's only through the sort of like reckless pursuit of a possible wholeness and completeness of a, a universal truth that she comes to a more dialectical universal truth, which is that like life is marked by death. Um, but it's only you know she, that that. Um, that healing would not have been able to be possible unless it was for, unless she, she, um, you know, engaged in this belief that it was possible that her child could be saved. Um, but I, I, so I really like using film to, to bring people, I would call it like to the gaze of lack. So, um, one identifies with a character who is very invested in, um, pursuing something or achieving something or, um, Finding something out and then what is revealed. And this is what, you know, it was much more common in, and I think film does this so well, but you know, in, um, pre-neoliberal cinema, you know, this is, this is, this is the Wizard of Oz. Um, it's actually, it's only in getting the, the the audience to really invest in this way that one can make the gravity of the contradictory lacking nature of the universe (laughs) land. I feel like so. Yeah, I I like to bring people along for a ride and then make them sorely disappointed or, you know, use this form to communicate some truth about reality that I don't think um, lands that well. Um, well, I think film has a particularly is a particularly adept at getting this to land. I think that you know you look at a Rothko painting; it does the same thing. Not that like my films would ever be anywhere near as good as that, but um, I feel like film is a technology that can allow us to experience this sort of um, universal not in reality. Yeah.
0: I want to hear. Are you guys uh, good to go for another 10 or 20? Because I, I want to hear. I could do
1: 10 probably.
0: Okay. Jason, uh, I'm going to unleash Jason because I I know he'll probably want to say some things about uh, art and film. You know, going back to an earlier conversation, you know, it's a real shame that that we really have to commodify everything, be it religion, our hobbies. Uh, Patreon.com slash Gnostic. For as little as a (laughs) dollar per piece of media per month, you can help us keep the show going. Uh, You can also uh, give us more than that. You can give us less than that. You you can set uh, a cap on the amount. We usually do four to six pieces of media per month. We don't Give you anything for your support, but we give you early access to the shows when I have the time and uh, <laughs> to put them out. Uh, but that said, we're we're incredibly grateful. And if you want us to give you something, just just let us know. I'm always trying to figure out like uh, uh, the, what we can give back to our, our patrons. We don't want to put uh, content behind a paywall in this particular situation because of you know there is a lot of religious content and we want to spread the gnosis. You can do one time donations at PayPal.me/gnostic. Okay, uh, the Jason our Film, uh, the lights, camera, action. Cool.
2: Go. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, I a lot of this is actually just me, me saying that I would agree. I think the only thing I would say is I think, um, I think film is particularly adept at it uh, because of the, but I think it, in, in many ways because of the kind of the the, the strategies of storytelling that have grown through. <laughs> through history of like mm-hmm. of theater and uh, literature mm-hmm. and like, mm-hmm. you know, film is kind of ha- uh, also has, <laughs> I think, um, unlike theater in which the audience can look uh, at the lights or at the, 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 the set instead of the actor, a kind of thing like that, or um, a novel, which the reader can put down. Film mm-hmm. is kind of like, unless you leave the theater, you're going to see,
1: mm-hmm. like
2: there, there's a, such a, a strong amount of control. Yeah. that's That's, that's possible there, which I think is, is uh is fascinating and i think one thing that i um uh so uh what i was really struck by in terms of what you were saying was the um that sense of the uh giving somebody like a hope and then like kind of taking it away or or not fulfilling that that promise and i think there's something like in a way maybe all like uh all project like all art projects can can hit or hit that button at varying levels of efficacy. Mm-hmm, if that mm-hmm, makes sense, mm-hmm. um, I think that's right. Yeah, like in some of them may, in fact, even by by striving to hit it as hard as possible, are the ones who f- are furthest from the mark. If that makes sense, no,
1: that, I think that's but, absolutely true. But the thing is, it's like art. Art, I would say, I I mean, I am biased because I like art, but I think it is the most powerful force in the universe. <laughs> best life of love I don't know but no I think art precisely because it tolerates contradiction that's why it's so Mm. powerful and that's why I think it's so um we have an appetite for it um and film interestingly I think sometimes films um let's say politically speaking or philosophically speaking that are most useful to talk about are the ones that really try to paper over contradiction with like an ideological narrative and they they're so rubbish then it's so obvious what this sort of like I mean, some some films that are very celebrated do this, and I don't want to like. I I feel bad sort of naming names, but there are some films that are like so ideological that I. But they make for great like conversation fodder. But um, but yeah, no, I and I think the thing is that that art that doesn't tolerate contradiction is, you know, propaganda really. (laughs) Um, but 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 I think art, and obviously, yeah, sometimes if one is trying to communicate something even though it might be a dialectical truth does that still make it art I do mm-hmm. think that if art still needs to be organized around ideas um, and I think that when art when the medium itself puts a viewer or a spectator in a position so it's less to do with like like explicit ideas but rather mm-hmm. Like a subjective position in the viewer, um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I actually do make propaganda, not art.
2: You know, that's the uh, question I ask myself. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm having a kind of an intense moment right now because part of what, part of the reason I got into Gnosticism was because it, in it, in its poetry, described what it feels like when I'm directing a play, you know? mm-hmm. um, when I'm mm-hmm. when I'm writing poetry, when I'm when I'm making anything creative, and mm-hmm. and it feels like it's working. Mm-hmm. But why, why I mentioning that right now is because I think what, I, what you may have helped me uncover is that for me particularly the moment that I'm often chasing is that moment in which the art is holding a contradiction mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. is
2: is allowing the contradictory space to be present and not answered but but felt if that makes mm-hmm. sense mm-hmm. Um, And in fact actually the uh, uh, art projects that that create that space and then, try to answer it directly i've mm-hmm. i've often felt that that's where they fail
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whereas
2: the like in fact uh, um i just i just watched your your films earlier this morning and i feel like part of what they did so well is they sort of held that space and then we then were like and now you know <laughs> go have coffee like go go talk about this go because no i you know? yeah
1: it's interesting because this is again i think you know so much film um becomes sort of sickly and dissatisfying when yeah and because obviously there's a commodity like when it's commoditized there's this commercial imperative to promise something so Mm -hmm. but the art form itself I would say the technique because partly because of as you say this sort of dreamlike state potentially this sort of super rational um, very visceral way in which it engages an audience and you can say well like you know music is universal and colour is universal and all these you know these these projects are made collectively with lots of you know there's we talk about directors but really this is the work of like a multitude of different people so there's ways that like on a very basic level um you know maybe we can say that they they, they, they tolerate the sort of universal which i think the only universal is lacking contradiction but um but i think film itself does it takes you on a ride And that ride inevitably, because of the nature of reality, in my opinion, will be towards lack and contradiction. But then in a commoditized commercial sense, there has to be this sort of like resolution. And I Mm -hmm. think the real dissatisfaction or, you know, like sort of sickening quality to some cinema is and often, though, it's not it's not like base crappy, um, you know, popcorn movie but rather sort of like um semi-elite um self-congratulatory uh <laughs> political <laughs> you know where it comes to a conclusion or you know and 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 when 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 that happens when when there is a sort of like um and, and I I mean because I do a lot of writing and I always try to to like have the work come from an idea from a theme but the theme is not like It might be a question or it might be um, and, you know, if the conclusion is always, let's say, like that, but, you know, it will be revolving around this question. But when I think a work um, has an answer to the question rather than provides the multitude of voices or multitude of perspectives on this question. Um, But I think, yeah, it's interesting because I think sort of prestige cinema in a way has in some ways become the worst offender. (laughs) <laughs> In terms of like this ideological sim- cinema, you know, it's the same as like you know the the honesty of the believer, the kind of like trashy popcorn film, which is not which isn't claiming to be anything other than trashy. you know, you can just sort of escape and enjoy it, and you know, it's a bit. It might leave you feeling a bit empty, but it's fine. But the sort of coming to a very concrete, um, apolitical. I mean, I always think these sort of like propagandistic political. Mm-hmm. Um, deterministic ideas are actually very apolitical and politics is precisely the contradiction of different points of view and when you sort of come down on one absolute certainty I think that's actually that which prevents politics from happening so often I think things that are that claim to be a political film are precisely not political enough you <laughs> know they're annoying because mm-hmm. they're not actually doing politics but um but yeah you no, and I think film inevitably does something um but it's kind of difficult because often it's difficult to place what you're doing and it's interesting because you you might go to um, different parts of the world where your films go down better because there is a sort of like maybe less uh, less of a domination of um an ideology of promise or a sort of a capitalistic outlook or you know in the past I always think of things like yeah The Wizard of Oz like would and we and we, we enjoy it and we watch it because we know it's a good film but like if it was released today would it even be able to be made but would it get past sort of media executives who may be like what does this mean or this isn't mm-hmm. you know this is this isn't upli- uplifting enough or what, whatever or, um yeah hmm.
0: definitely well we, we we should let you go helen but before we do uh tell us where people can find you online discover your work uh you know i have not flashing it up oh. on the screen but some people yeah. listen to this as a podcast i will link it but but give us your plugs
1: So, uh, yeah, I have uh, the podcast, The Lack. My work actually is not that findable. Uh, Stuff, (laughs) basically, if you look hard enough, you can find it. But that's for a reason, because and this is to do with the stupid commoditisable nature of reality. Like I have I have had to in the past keep my work private. But I am just thinking of just putting it all online because why not? Um, I'm working on a documentary miniseries at the moment that is more mainstream that will come out next year um
0: it might even have some explicit religious themes i know a podcast yes, that you'll does. be able to come on and talk about it, <laughs> so. that's
1: how explicit religious is i'm fascinated by the religious world and religious people and are set in the world of televangelism um mm-hmm. and i have written some essays i have a sub stack <laughs> um yeah
0: yeah, That's we'll we we'll link it up. And and if you go to YouTube, even though your full films aren't there, there are there are some teasers, there's some clips, mm-hmm. so uh people people can uh, uh people can watch those and uh yeah, hopefully hopefully we'll be able to put them online. But I know there's there's realities related to uh uh, uh film festivals and all sorts of things that uh, that make it difficult. Uh Jason, tell people where they can find you online.
2: Uh, I'm pretty easy to find, just my name, JasonMemel.com. Um, and if you're uh, interested in, in theatre and you're in the uh, uh, southern Alberta area, you can uh, find Um And actually, I just wanted to say one quick little, um, I don't know, agnostic bow I want to tie on this based on some of the stuff that, uh, that Helen's been saying, is that what really strikes me is that what I often call a Gnostic mistake is when folks discover Gnosticism and want to, layer on it, like on a nearly identical religion on top of like so mm-hmm. the god above god they just want to be more godlike if that makes sense um so it's like it's just a different guy with a beard and a cloud um but what i find so striking about what you're talking about is that what maybe there isn't anything on that higher level or whatever it, it whatever is conceivable is like we don't have a framework for it so that's like i think what what i'm really struck by is the Part of that part of this gnostic uh, the um, process is to try to get beyond that lack or to try to bridge that lack and not replace it with another with not with another commodity if that mm-hmm, makes sense mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. What, what's what's another easily understandable concept I can just apply on top if that makes mm-hmm. sense like, it's, it's the question, not the answer. That's, exactly. uh, that's a vibe exactly. I wanted to connect here. You're,
0: you're getting comfortable with the, the lack. You have to acknowledge it and be in that space, perhaps. Exactly. <laughs> to tie, tie a bow to tie a bow on the bow. Yeah. Uh, okay, my plugs. Uh, I am going to be taking a little break from life, but the great thing about, um, well, actually, I'm going to be embracing life, so I'm, I'm making a new one. <laughs> well I'm actually I've already done the work it's, I did the easy part so um, <laughs> well maybe said, you'll,
1: you'll, be, you'll be not sleeping for a while that will be quite difficult
0: yes exactly exactly although I'm already an insomniac uh, I wish I was one of those productive insomniacs I'm not uh, you know I'm just up all night staring at the ceiling it's great so uh, so the, I'll be able to put this too, to good use anyways the great thing about podcasts and YouTube uh, shows is they live on the internet forever so who knows when you're listening to this so you can uh, if you're ever in Montreal sometimes I do stuff on Online. my parish is holygrail.substack.com. You can uh, I teach meditation, uh, secular meditation. Uh, mile, end meta, mile, mile End Meditation.substack.com. You know I got got to give some plugs for for Jason and I's tradition. There's actually a free course that you can take online, which is slash learn It's an awesome course about the, the sp- specific stream of Joanine mysticism and uh, Gnosticism, and it's fun. There's no requirements. You know, you, you the after Taking the course, you don't have to, you know, shave your head and give us all your money or anything. Uh, even if you're vaguely interested, you can check that out. Now to plug another school, because I want to become the world's first GCASI millionaire, which is gcast.ie. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's where, uh, Helen does some teaching and advising where she runs and is one of the founders of their art department, which is new. We didn't get a, a chance to talk about it. And if you were interested in some of the psycho, uh, analytic, uh, aspects, uh, you can also just take a course there, right? You don't have to do degrees. You don't have to do anything. Uh, take a course or a seminar. If you're interested in some of this Lacanian death of God, continental philosophy stuff that has come up in uh, 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 the show today, that that's a great place to to study it. So uh, that's it. Bye, everybody. Thanks again, Helen.
2: Thanks, uh, guys. Hey.